Hey, good morning, faith family. If you have your Bible, please make your way to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, we're continuing our series called Conflicted, uh, basically looking at kind of the human struggle uh, that was taking place in a lot of the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so um, uh, this morning we come to Luke 23, very familiar scene uh, where Jesus is uh, crucified between two thieves and a conversation that takes place uh, between them, and uh, we're going to look at that this morning. Luke 23, verse 32. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, they, were, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what beautiful words here. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Would you pray with me? Pray for me. Lord, thanks for the privilege of being together today. Uh, You have brought us here for a purpose um, because you want to speak to us through your word. We are under the authority of your word, um, so may we receive it uh, with clarity today. And Lord, we just ask that you'd speak to us. We so desperately want to hear from you and Uh, I need you to to do what I can't do. Um, So, Lord, give me the strength uh, in my weakness that uh, supernatural things might occur in these moments. All to the glory and only the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It may be one of the smartest uh, crimes ever committed. Uh, In his book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior, Max Licata talks about a crime that took place uh, in a large city where thousands of dollars in merchandise was stolen from a large department store, and it was done so in a very unique way, because when the thieves broke in in the middle of the night, they didn't take anything. All the money was still in the safe. All the merchandise was still on the shelves. Everything in the store was exactly the way it was supposed to be, except one thing. The price tags 
You see, what the thieves had done, they knew that if they actually stole the items, that in the morning when everybody showed up, they would, knew, they would know that there had been a robbery. And so what they decided to do is simply rearrange the value of the items. And so what would have been like a $5 box of paper was now $500. And what was like a $500 video camera was now $5. And so they rearranged the price tags and left. And guess who the first two people were in the morning when the store opened? (laughs) Those thieves walked in in plain clothes, bought expensive merchandise at ridiculously marked down prices, and walked out the store, and no one even said a word. In fact, it was reported that it took four hours, four hours, before any of the employees realized that all the values in the store had been rearranged. Now, that's tricky, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's slick in one, one sense. And here's the truth, faith family. It happens to us every single day day. Here's what I mean. I need you to hear me this morning. We are living in a world where the price tags have been rearranged. What I mean is be careful because what the world tends to find as valuable actually often has no value whatsoever in the kingdom of God. And listen, what the world often devalues and says is insignificant and doesn't matter often has great significance in the kingdom of God. You think, for instance, throughout the biblical narrative, God chooses Israel, not a mighty nation like Assyria or Babylon, but a small, weak, slave nation. Or Moses, here's the great leader in the Old Testament, somebody who can hardly speak without stuttering. Jesus comes into lowly circumstances, born to peasant parents, not royalty. Jesus teaches things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, that is, are broken. Blessed are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. His disciples are merely fishermen. His ministry resonates and connects with the outcast and sinners. And I could keep going on and on and on. Here's my point. Be careful that you value what actually has no value in the kingdom of God. Be careful that you dismiss what is actually the most significant thing in the kingdom of God. It's so easy to have the price tags rearranged and not even know that it's happened. Of all the things that this is true about, there is none more true than the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Look at it. It says, For the word of the cross is, say it, folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, Paul's point is, most people fail to see the value or the significance of a crucified man. Most people look at the cross and they don't see any significance at all. It is foolishness to them, but to us, 
to the people of God. It's the power of God for salvation. But the world doesn't see it as valuable. They see it as insignificant. And that is exactly what's happened in Luke chapter 23. Here's what's happened in the passage that we just read right here. Everybody looks at the cross, at Jesus, and sees no value whatsoever. They laugh. They mock. They ridicule. They scoff. They walk away. They don't see it as any significance. But there's one man. There's one man who sees through it all to the most valuable significant person in all the world. Let me show you this. First, look at thief number one who is crucified next to Jesus. He represents all of those that fail to see the significance of the cross. And he does so for three reasons. Jot these down. Number one, he fails to see the significance of Christ, the value of the cross, because Jesus becomes lost in the crowd. Jesus becomes lost in the crowd. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard that before? Does it, does it ring a bell? It should. Just go back a few verses to verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. And what did they say? He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. And then verse 36, the soldiers, they also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, here it is again, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. In other words, right here, the first thief is simply saying what everybody else is saying. Uh, the, the, the scribes are scoffing him. The Roman soldiers are scoffing him and ridiculing him. So he just goes along, goes with the flow. There's no original thinking here. He's simply buying in to what everybody else is saying about Jesus. And here's the point, faith family. I need you to hear this. I need you to understand this. If you start listening to the culture very long, you'll start believing what they're saying. It's what Psalm 1 warns us of. Look at Psalm 1, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, that is, listens to worldly influence, nor stands in the way of sinners. Standing in the way is the idea, not like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be in, get in your way. It's you walk in their path. You do what they do. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers, that is, you mock truth, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And you know, going on it, you meditate on it day and night. So here's the point. The, the spiral, you need to hear this. Everybody, particularly young people, right? When you listen to ungodly things, you begin to do ungodly things. And if you do ungodly things long enough, you begin to scoff the godly. I can't believe that you believe Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Crosses are stupid. Miracles don't happen. The Bible's full of errors. In other words, if you want to miss the significance of Jesus, all you have to do is listen to the crowd. 
All you have to do is listen to the culture around you because nobody, according to the Apostle Paul, recognizes the significance of Christ and Him crucified. The majority of the people think it's foolishness. Number two, not only does he become lost in the crowd for this man, but secondly, Jesus does not meet his criteria. Jesus doesn't meet his criteria. What he says is, are you not the Christ? Come on, buddy, prove yourself. Are you him? Or, of course, this is another thing that everybody else is saying, right? If you go back a few verses, you see that they're saying, if he's the one, he'll come down. If he's the one, he'll save himself. In other words, right here, they have a, a Messiah box. And Jesus doesn't fit in it. They, they, they have a, a, a paradigm of which they think about messiahs, chosen ones, kings. And Jesus doesn't quite fit the profile. He, after all, doesn't have a great army. I mean, he's just got a bunch of fishermen following him around. There's no power here. My goodness, he's weak and beaten and broken. There's no strength at all. And then add to all of that, he's hanging on a cross. Messiahs don't die. If you're the one, you wouldn't be on a cross. Do you see what he's saying? It reminds me, any Matrix fans? Matrix trilogy, a few of you? Well, okay, yeah. It's like every hand that went up were mostly guys, all right? Um, <laughs> Do you remember in the Matrix when the main character, Neo, Keanu Reeves, uh, he's, according to the oracle, he's supposed to be what? The one. That's what everybody thinks. He's the one. Um, well, that theory that he's the one becomes very, very complicated when this happens. Now, what's happening there? What's happening is this. You can't be the one and be dead. This can't be happening because the one doesn't die. Uh, by the way, just for full disclosure, if you've never seen the movie, he comes back to life. <laughs> Reminds you of anybody else you know? Wink, wink. All right. Anyways, messiahs don't die. You, you can't be the one and be on a cross. The, the criteria I have for messiahs, Jesus, you don't fit it. And listen, people do this with God all the time. Can I, can I get on a soapbox for just a moment? I'm going to anyways. People will say this. They'll say, and I understand why they're saying, listen, listen, hear me. I understand why people are saying, they'll say, I don't believe God exists 
because of all the suffering in the world. Or, I don't believe God can be a loving God because of everything that's happening in the world. Or, I could never believe in a God that... Fill in the blank. In other words, you have a criteria for God, and the only way you're going to believe is if He meets that criteria. To which, let me insert what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, what is molded, uh, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? I don't mean to offend you, but I'm going to offend you. Listen, God doesn't conform to your criteria. We conform to His. I mean, newsflash, He's God. We're not. I mean, seriously, I understand your questions. I understand that they're legitimate. I get it. And I know some of you have those, and that's fine. But who do you think you are to tell God who he must be? Preach, preacher. You're the molded. He's the molder. It doesn't matter if it's comfortable. It doesn't matter if you like it. What matters is how has God revealed Himself? Because one surefire way to miss the value of Jesus Christ is to develop your own criteria for who He should be. The only way you value Him is see Him for who He is. Number three. He doesn't just get lost in the crowd or doesn't meet His criteria. I almost laugh at this one just... But I have to be careful because sometimes too often it's me, is Jesus would not obey his commands. I mean, just think about that statement. Like, Jesus, like a little puppy, you know, come here, boy, right? I got something I want you to do, so come here. And now, where I get this from the text is the phrase is, uh, save yourself and us. Now, by save us, save me, he's not talking spiritually. He's not saying, I repent of my sin. I want to be right with God. I want salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, get me out of this. Get me out of my situation. Get me down off this cross. And there's a sense in which we can't blame the guy. He is dying a horrifying death. But he only sees Jesus as valuable if Jesus gets him out of his circumstances. In other words, if you don't get me down off the cross, then what good are you to me? And how many, man, how many times do we do that? Come here, come here, come here, come here. Jesus, if you want me to believe in you, then take this cancer away. Jesus, if you want me to serve you, then answer this prayer the way I'm asking you to answer it. Do you see? So often we come to Jesus saying, here are my commands. I'll be happy to believe in you as long as you do what I've asked. Well, in that situation, your relationship isn't a relationship. It's just a transaction. Can I tell you this? Listen, the truth is, if you knew everything God knows, you would have answered your prayer the same way he did. Just chew on that for a minute. If you knew everything God knows, you would have answered your prayer the same way he did. The, the truth is, you don't know all that God knows. And he knows more of what's best for you than you do. 
But this man missed the significance of Christ crucified because Jesus wouldn't do what he wanted Jesus to do. So it is really easy to miss the significance of Christ. How? Here's all you got to do. Ready? Everybody listening? All you got to do. You want to miss the significance of Jesus? It's very simple. Listen to what the culture is saying. Create your own criteria for who God should be and make the basis of your relationship purely transactional in nature. And you will never see the value and significance of what Christ is doing on the cross. Now, I want us to compare that to this second thief, the second criminal that is crucified next to Jesus. But before we look at what he says in Luke 23, I want to show you some uh, 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 parallel passages in other Gospels because what the man is about to say is different than what he's been saying. In other words, I want you to see the change that takes place in his life that makes him very different than the other thief. Look, for instance, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44 on the screen. It says, and the robbers. Now, audience participation part of the sermon. Is robbers singular or plural? Plural, plural right? Robbers. How many were crucified next to Jesus? Two meaning it's both of them. Both of these robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Let me give you one more. Mark chapter 15, verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Watch. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Here's the point. This second thief was saying the same thing the other one was. But something changed. Something drastically changed. Because look at what he says now in Luke 23 and verse 40. This is amazing. But the other, that is the other thief, rebuked him, the first thief, saying... Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly? We're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. I mean, talk about your lives transformed by the power of the gospel, to coin a phrase. This man's been transformed. How is it, how did he how has he changed? What accounts for this 180 in his life? Here's what it is. Everybody right here, if you've zoned out, zone back in to hear this. Here's what I think happened based on the text. It's my best guess from the text. It's this. The first thief was listening to the voice of the crowd. The second thief listened to the voice of Christ. Let that land. First thief is listening to what everybody else is saying and he's repeating it. The other one does for a while until he hears something that changes him. What does he hear? Look back at verse 34. Verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's powerful. That's amazing. And I think that this thief hears that. In fact, both thieves may have heard it, but this man hears it and he believes it. And because he believes it, it changes him. 
It changes him radically in three ways. Notice the shift that takes place. Number one, his view of his self changes because of hearing Father forgive them. Here's why I think happened. He heard Father forgive them, and in hearing them, him say forgive them, he realizes his own sin. Like that there's something that he needs to be forgiven of, which is his own sin, which is why he says, verse 41, we indeed are being punished justly. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, right here, right here, this is big. I'm getting excited. Here we go. He's no longer asking to get down off the cross because he realizes it's what he deserves. I'm getting what I deserve. How dare you question Jesus? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, it's my sin that nailed me here. This is where I belong. My sin before God deserves death. Please, please understand. When he says, I'm being punished justly, he's not saying Rome is doing the right thing. He hates Rome. He's being crucified for treason against Rome. He doesn't like anything related to Rome. Think Barabbas. He's simply saying this, I realize now more than being a criminal in the eyes of Rome, I am a sinner in the eyes of God. And I'm exactly where I should be because I have sinned against this man. And he knows that he is being treated justly even though he pleads for Grace. And what is grace? Do you remember we've talked about this, faith family? Grace is the undeserved gift, but we can't stop there, from an unobligated giver. Meaning, right here, you've heard me say this, the moment you expect grace, like the first thief, is the moment you don't understand grace. What part of you don't deserve it and he's not obligated to give it, do you not understand? This man gets grace. I, I shouldn't be given grace. What I should be is dead. Like that's radically different than the way the first thief thinks about himself. The first thief is like, get me out of here. Come on. Get yourself down. And while you're getting yourself down, get me down too. This man says, I'm right where I should be be. Wow. He hears Father forgive them. They know not what they do. And the second thing that changes is his view of Jesus. His view of Jesus. Keep reading in verse 41. But this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, hearing him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here's what I think. This is just the best I can put together from the text is uh, there's that moment, you ever had that moment when you can see clearly? And here's what I think he sees. That man is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the one. He is the Messiah. I don't need him to prove himself to me. I need to receive who he is. And I believe he is the one. He is innocent. He's committed no wrong. The sinless Son of God. And then number three, not only does his view of self change, his view of Jesus changes, but then thirdly, his view on life changes. Look at verse uh, 42. And he said, uh, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow, wow, what a change. 
here's what I think happens. He hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them, and he realizes for the first time what really matters in life. What really matters in life. I need everybody to look right here. What really matters in life is not coming down off of a cross, but being in a kingdom. What difference does it make if you're taken down off your cross if you don't belong to his kingdom? In a moment, in an amazing moment of conversion, he sees my biggest issue is not temporary suffering. My biggest issue is eternal life with God. My biggest issue isn't physical. My biggest issue is spiritual. Yes, don't misunderstand me. I want down off the cross just like that guy does. But what I want more than relief from my circumstances is assurance in the kingdom of God. Because temporary relief doesn't really matter if it's followed by eternal suffering. Whereas temporary suffering gets put in perspective when you know you have eternal joy. Do you see the difference there? My goodness. It reminds me of, do you remember the story when uh, there was the paralytic and his friends bring him to Jesus and they can't get to Jesus so they kind of create a hole in the roof and they lower him down? Uh, watch what happens. What Jesus says is always, it's prof- everything he says is profound, but particularly this time I'm like, that's amazing. Watch what happens. This is Mark chapter 2 verse 3. Uh, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men and uh, they couldn't get near because of the crowd. So they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let him down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, now here's what's just fascinating for me. Watch this. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. To which I think his buddies would have said, that's awesome, but that ain't why we're here. I mean, thank you, Jesus, for the whole forgiveness stuff. Woohoo, we'll take that. But we'd like him to walk. It's like going to the doctor because you got back pain, and the doctor enrolls you in a typing class or counseling, or you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, thanks for the counseling and typing workshop, but I'm kind of here for a problem. And I would prefer that you actually address the problem in which why I've come to you to address. What's the point? Jesus knows full well what this man needs is not to walk again. It's to be born again. What good is it if you can walk if you don't walk with Jesus Christ? Now, before you think Jesus is insensitive to physical needs, what happens? He later will say, get up and walk. But he addressed the man's real issue first. That's what this criminal realizes. His issue isn't get off the cross. His issue is, I want to be in the kingdom of God. Um, Think of it this way. Imagine you have a billion dollars. Play along. Imagine you have a billion dollars and we were friends. No, I'm just kidding. You, imagine you had a billion dollars and uh, you had a billion dollars and uh, you go to a twins game. Of course, you have good seats. And uh, 
you get back home and somewhere along the way, you realize you lost a dollar. Is your response to retrace all your steps, go back to Target Field and look around all the seats to try to find that one dollar? No, you're not. Why? Because you understand everything that you have, it makes that one dollar seem less significant in light of all you've been given. Here's my point. If you've been forgiven of the greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins, you don't need Jesus to come down off the cross because of what he's done for you through the cross. You don't, in other words, what Jesus is doing at the cross for you makes everything else you're going through circumstantially be put in the proper perspective. Do you see? Let me just give you a moment here to meditate on the difference between these two. So just listen. And which, which one of these uh, are you? Number one. One listens to the voice of the crowd, the other listens to the voice of Christ. One wants something from Jesus, the other one wants to be with Jesus. One wants to be off the cross, the other one wants to be in the kingdom. One wants a life of no pain, the other one wants paradise. One wants to save his skin, the other one just wants to save his soul. One rejects Jesus if it means suffering. The other one embraces suffering if it means Jesus. One wants to change his circumstances. The other one's had a change of heart. One demands proof. The other one wants pardon. And lastly, one values this life. The other receives eternal life. Could the two be any more different? One represents failing to see the value and significance of Christ and Him crucified, and the other one sees it, believes it, and receives it. Now, notice what Jesus says to this second thief, and then we'll be done. This phrase in verse uh, 43, I almost thought about preaching the whole sermon just on this phrase because there's so much here. But look at what Jesus says to him. Truly... I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that just profound? What an amazing, gracious statement. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what does it mean? Um, most of the time when people go to this verse, they go to it uh, without the proper context. They, they tend to just talk about heaven which there's a sense in which that's true, but most of the time it's to prove that baptism doesn't save you. You know what I mean? It's like, well, baptism can't save you because like the criminal on the cross didn't have to come down off the cross and get baptized and then get back up on the cross to die. You know, that's kind of the, the argument. And listen, by the way, I think that's true. I, I'm not denying that at all. I'm just saying that's not the point of the text at, whatsoever. Jesus isn't addressing baptism at all. Here's what he's saying. Jesus' statement, today you'll be with me in paradise, actually goes back to a psalm. It is Psalm 118, and many of you will know this psalm, at least uh, uh, one of the verses of the psalm. Look at it, Psalm 118, verse 14. It says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my, say it, 
salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my This stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And here's the verse most of you know. This is the day that the Lord has made. I almost say, I will rejoice. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And some of you are already singing that song, right? You know the song, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I could clearly do Pastor Terry's job. I mean, it's it's like... All you got to know is four chords and you're good, all right? So anyways, I digress. But you think of that song, don't you? This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And we typically like use that for good weather. You know, it's like, oh, it's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? We know this is the day the Lord has made. Or it's kind of like your spiritual rocky music. In the morning, it's like, whatever happens, whatever happens today, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Well, it's fine if you do all that. You're just taking the verse out of context. <laughs> no, I mean, it's perfectly fine that you do that to pump you up. It's just not what the verse means. What is the, this is the day that the Lord has made? What's the day? I, I made you say the word every time it came up. Psalm 118 is a salvation psalm, meaning the day that he's referring to, this is the day that the Lord has made, is the day of salvation. The day of salvation the Lord has made. When Jesus, in fact, let me give you one more example, Luke chapter 19 and verse 9, watch this. Jesus said to him, today, that is this day, Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. So here's the point. When, this is so awesome, when Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, what he's saying is this, the day of salvation is here. The day, this day, you will be with me in paradise. This day, salvation has come. It's a salvation statement more than anything else. And, and because it's that, it then shows us what salvation is quickly. Number one, salvation is restoration. This word paradise is not used that often in the scriptures. It is used frequently in the Septuagint. If you don't know what that is, that's simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Isaiah, for instance, will use it uh, for a word like garden to describe metaphorically the restoration of God's people. Uh, look, for instance, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, that's garden language, which is in the paradise of God. That's restoration language. I wish I had a lot of time here. I don't, but I'm going to try to be simple. Listen, the Bible starts in a garden where things are right with God. Mankind sins and becomes fallen. And so all of history is moving towards a restoration of the beginning. 
It's why Romans 8, it says all of creation is longing for the day of redemption, that is, restoration. We are longing for a day when Jesus will make all things new. Guess what? Don't lose me. I know I'm being technical. Come back, come back right here. What salvation is, is entering into that process now. Any man, any woman be in Christ, he or she's a new creation. Behold, the old is past. Behold, all things are made new. You are experiencing a taste now of paradise. What is paradise? It is the place of final restoration. It's when everything is made right because Jesus has the power to restore your brokenness. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Criminal, robber, thief, today you will be restored. That's beautiful. Number two, what is salvation? It's relational. That is, why is it ultimately uh, about restoration? Because today you will be with me. Right here. What makes paradise a place of restoration is because you're going to be with the one who makes all things new. Hey, 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 hey. Where Jesus is, there paradise is. Heaven's only heaven because Jesus is there. It's only restoration because the one who has the power to look at Lazarus and say, get on up out of the grave, Lazarus, rise, come forth, and he does, it is restorative because the restorer is the one you're with forever. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's only paradise because you're with him. So my question for you today is, are you with him? Do you know him? It's relational. It's being with Christ. And that's what makes paradise so great. It's not palm trees and sunsets. It's a risen sun. The one who has the power to restore. And then lastly, and all this happens because of radical grace. Today... That's a salvation term. Today, you, you, you will be with me in paradise. Well, who's the you? It's a criminal, a robber, a thief, a rebel. In other words, what Jesus is saying when he says to this criminal on the cross that you will be with me in paradise is there is no one, no one, no one, no one, no one that is outside the reach of my grace. There is no one I can't save. There is no one too far gone. There is no one too treasonous. No one too much of a rebel. No one too much of a sinner. No mocker that is mocked too much that cannot be saved by my grace. Here's the beauty of the gospel. You, a criminal, can experience restoration, that is paradise, through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You and I, a criminal, that is we have rebelled against God, can experience restoration now and forever. Today, today, right now, today, 
through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, which means, and I'll close with this, which means um, here's what the first thief missed. And it's the essence of the gospel. The first thief said, save yourself and us. What is Jesus' answer? It's this. Jesus can save us because he did not save himself. The reason he can offer salvation to you today is because he didn't come down off the cross. He embraced it, he endured it, and he walked out of what we will celebrate today and next week as well. He walks out of the grave so that he can look at you and say this, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. It's the tale of two thieves. Which one are you? Which one are you? Same situation, totally different response. One, listen to the voice of the crowd. The other, listen to the voice of Christ. One, look here, looked at a man hanging on the cross and said, I see no significance there at all. The other looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and said, there is no one more valuable in all of life. Which one are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. I trust that it's clear in terms of the ways in which we miss how significant you are and what you've done on the cross. How we tend to like to develop our own criteria for who you should be and we're constantly thinking we know what's best. And, but at the end of the day, we just need to, to let the gospel get our minds right to understand who we are, to understand who Christ is, and to have the right perspective on life. There is nothing more valuable, nothing more beautiful than Jesus and Him crucified. May that be the, may we be like the person in the parable that found the treasure hidden in a field and for joy sold everything just to have it because there was nothing more valuable. May we be like that one who values and cherishes Jesus Christ above everything else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.